Well, we are uh, finished with Colossians, of course, and uh, so the, the plan is to do five weeks here in uh, the Psalms again, return to the Psalms for about five weeks, and then after that, we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes for however long that takes. Uh, that, that might seem a little like kicking us while we're down but uh, by going to Ecclesiastes, but I, I think, I hope it will have the opposite effect. Um, when we get there. But anyway, for now, um, we'll be in the Psalms, and today we're going to be in Psalm 115. If you would uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 115. And just as you're turning there, uh, I want to ask you a question just to consider. Uh, When you call out to God for help, when you are praying to Him, asking for aid, as you face uh, various types of problems um, as you look out into a troubled world and you pray for aid, for help, uh, what is your ultimate desire? Uh, when, when you pray and ask for help about whatever it is, uh, what is your ultimate desire? I think there's many reasons why we pray, uh, various desires that we have as we pray, uh, many of them good desires. Uh, we might desire relief from pain, might desire greater obedience in your own life. Perhaps you look out and just desire the world not to crumble out of concern for other people. Uh, maybe desiring other people to be saved, that they might escape the judgment of God and, and themselves be uh, saved and preserved and have eternal life. Uh, many different desires, many of which can be very good. But as we come to Psalm 115 today, we are reminded of the ultimate reason why we should desire God to act in this world. We're reminded of this right out of the gate as the psalm begins, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. The author of the psalm never explicitly here asks for help. We don't don't see him lay out his specific request in this. But nevertheless, I think it's quite clear that the need for God's help, uh, the need for God's intervention is what's driving this psalm. It's what's underneath it, if you will, uh, bringing it about. This, 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 this plea for God, this desire for God to glorify himself. We're reminded of the ultimate reason why God should act, that he might be glorified, that he might be honored, that he might be held in high regard. And so this psalm draws us back to um, the glory and the greatness of our God. And the, the reality is this is a reminder we need continually, all the time, uh, to, be, to be reminded. Even as we think about, again, different requests we might make and different desires we have uh, of what ultimately should be our ultimate desire for God to be known and to be glorified. So it's something we need reminder of. Uh, it's something that the nations need to, to know, that people around us need to grasp and understand, the greatness of the one true and living God. And, and by contrast to the greatness of the one true God, the, the folly and the emptiness of other so-called gods. So our outline as we work through this today, we're going to see the glory of God in his person. It'll be verses 1 to 8. And the glory of God in his saving, verses 9 to 15. And the glory of God praised forever in verses 16 to 18. So the glory of God in his person, 
in his saving and praised forever. So, uh, the psalm first reminds us of the glory of God in his person. So read with me, starting in verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And so the psalmist's desire here is for God's glory to be revealed and to be made known on behalf of his people as he acts on their behalf, I should say. He wants God to reveal himself glorious by acting for his people, by responding, by helping them out. He appeals to the steadfast love and faithfulness of God there in the second part of verse 1. If you recall, uh, these two words, they're they're two Hebrew words, they're translated into three here, but steadfast love on the one hand and faithfulness on the other, uh, these are regularly used in the Bible to refer to the special love and commitment and faithfulness that God shows to his covenant people, to those he is in covenant relationship with. Of course, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, this would be the nation of Israel. And so the psalmist desires God's commitment to his covenant people to bring about a display of his glory as he comes to their aid and as he helps them. That's what's that's what the, the this psalm is about, what this psalmist desires. And verse 2 reveals to us what is at stake here. If the people of God are left to suffer and to languish, the nations will mock. Right? They will mock saying, where is their God? Right? Look at their condition. Where is their God now? This concern that uh, the people of the world, that the other nations would not take this view of God, would not have any reason to say such things, uh, this is Moses' concern on a number of occasions. We read one of them from Numbers 14, uh, but also in Exodus chapter 32 after the golden calf incident when Moses is interceding for the people. These are two occasions where God threatened to wipe out the nation of Israel and start over with Moses, and he appeals to God and intercedes for the people, basing it on the fact that what will the nation say? You brought them out of Egypt, uh, but weren't able to bring them into the land that you said you would, and that's why they were destroyed and consumed. And, and so for the sake of your own name and glory, don't, don't let this happen. This is the basis of, of Moses' argument, of his prayer with God, to God. And so the proper concern for the Lord's people is not simply we don't want harm to come to us for our own sake, uh, but more broadly, what, God, will your enemies conclude if you don't help, if you don't deliver, if you don't answer? They'll mock you and despise you further. And this is not right given who you are. And so our concern today, just as with Moses, just as with the psalmist, must not simply be for our own safety, for our own comfort, for our own ease of living, even as we pray for these things, even as these things are good in and of themselves. Our, our concern ought not to be even just for our own reputation, but more fundamentally, our concern ought to be for the, the renown of, of the Lord, for the name of our God. What will others say? What will people say of you? And yet, regardless of how God chooses to act, uh, this sort of mocking, even if the Lord's people are in distress and in in a difficult way, 
this sort of mocking, this sort of questioning, where is their God? Uh, it's never appropriate. It's always entirely inappropriate. And the psalmist knows this, and he makes this quite plain when he says in verse 3, even though, as he's writing, quite likely they're in a difficult spot and in need of God's help, he nevertheless says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And so even when God chooses to delay his self-glorifying action, even when he permits his own people to go through suffering and through trial, he does this for his own reasons, uh, which we, you and I, may never fully grasp. This is so because he is the one who is in the heavens doing as he pleases. He is God. We are not. Our ways are not his ways. We all, as we try to figure out why God does what he does, why he allows the things he does, why could his people be uh, suffering the way they are, how, how, why would this be? Well, there comes a point where we just, we don't really know why we're not, we don't have access to his secret hidden ways and our, we just are left to fall silent before him. It's the, really the, the thing that Job had to learn as he was trying to figure out why and demanding certain answers. Eventually he, he, he had realized he had sinned and crossed the line, repented in dust and ashes and said he would shut his mouth. This mocking question is never appropriate. Where is Israel's God? Where is the church's God? Well, he is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Indeed, this is what makes one of the things that makes God, God. Right? He's separate from creation and he's the ultimate free being. He does what he pleases. This is a very troubling verse to many people, particularly those who would deny his sovereignty. But even as the psalmist is embattled, he knows that God is powerful and free to act at any time, but that he is also free to delay if he so chooses. Either way, he is in heaven and he does all that he pleases. Come what may. The psalmist affirms God's rule and his sovereignty. And then in verses 4 to 8, he continues his response. He continues his retort to this mocking question, where is their God? Not only is God in the heavens doing as he pleases, even though it's hard to grasp his plans, um, consider him in contrast to the pagan gods of these nations who would mock. Verses 4 to 8, let's read those. Their idols... These nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. The nations mock this God that they cannot see, while turning and making idols of all these created things, idols ultimately which are lifeless objects. The psalmist is setting things straight here by way of contrast. These lifeless objects fashioned by man versus the God who is in the heavens. Where is he? Where is he? Well, perhaps he's silent in this moment. Perhaps he's not coming to our aid right this second. But let's look at the alternative that you're putting forth. Lifeless idols that cannot speak Noses can't smell, 
fashioned by man. In his commentary, Derek Kidner writes, the pagan's pride in what he can see and his contempt for what he cannot see are flung back at him. A God too great to tie down to any image or even to earth itself, who is not the prisoner of circumstances but their master, is a God to glory in. And Kidner goes on to note that this contempt for what is unseen and pride in what is seen is not just an ancient attitude either. It's obviously very modern as well, very current. And yet denying the true God, as many do today, suppressing the truth about his existence in unrighteousness, this God who is unseen, uh, just because one rejects him and suppresses that truth, does not mean that that person ceases to worship. Man will worship someone or something. Romans 1 depicts this this descent from worshiping the true God into the worshiping of created things. One way or another, man will worship. It could be worshiping themselves. could be worshiping the fame, the praise of others, worshiping the human spirit itself, earth, mother earth, if you will, which you shouldn't. Money and possessions, or as uh, Christ called it, mammon, the god of mammon. All of these things, lifeless idols, foundations of, of sand. There's nothing to these. There's, there's no hope here. And, and I would suggest to you, as we think about the events of the last year, well, they have really served to pull the curtain back and reveal the lifelessness of our society's idols, the things that we have run to, to serve, to worship, to pursue, to live for. I don't think I've been shy in in stating um, my contempt for these lockdowns and for the way our governing authorities have handled the past year. Uh, There's been the rise, well-documented rise in depression, Increase in suicide rates, also well documented. Uh, These are just two aspects of the collateral damage occurring in society. But I would say also, the problem runs much deeper than just having freedoms being taken away. Having life so drastically altered. These events of the past year have revealed, not they've not caused, but they've revealed the fact that our society has been building itself on a foundation of sand which has not been able to withstand this present storm. And so as things have been taken away from people, what's left but the rise of despair, suicide and depression, despair everywhere? Because people have built their lives on False gods, worshiping false gods that cannot save. And so as everything's shaken and upset and rattled, there's just despair left. Let's just consider for a moment a few of our idols in our world. This is just a few. The god of sports. In the last year, uh, almost every, I think every major professional sport has canceled just just straight up canceled seasons or postponed or whatever. Just put an end to them. And then when they did come back, they came back kind of lame. There was no fans there to watch. 
All these silly protocols. Just not that entertaining. Hockey in the middle of summer is just kind of not, not that exciting. Most local sports canceled. This God of sports has not delivered. If you've been seeking fulfillment in this, this is what one has been living for, and many people live for this. Uh, it's, it's abandoned them in this past year. The God of, of partying, if you've always found solace in partying and drink, if this has been your escape from the difficulties of the world, well, what becomes of that when this is now outlawed? The God of work. Thousands have lost jobs. Many more have had their work made miserable in part by all the protocols and difficulties and challenges of the last year. The God of wealth, money, again, joblessness, market declines, two-income families needing to go down to one due to layoffs in order to stay home with kids who can't go to school. God of possessions. If you've racked up massive debt because you've worshipped possessions and now can't pay for those because you've lost work or you just can't enjoy them because you're locked down, well, what becomes of these? this idol? The God of health and long life. We've done a wonderful job of not thinking about death, of just medicating ourselves or distracting ourselves from having to think about this reality. Even funerals are not funerals. We don't think about death. We just, we are celebrating life. We won't even call it a funeral. And so we've done our best to not think about the fact that we will die, this death that comes to all of us. And yet in the last year, we've all of a sudden now been inundated with talk of death, with fear-mongering about death. And suddenly it's become a reality for people. Have to think about it. And even if that is overblown, it is, of course, true. Death is coming. Health, illusions of long life, this has been, this God is empty. There's the God of control. How many are realizing now that their thought that they can control everything and is, is, is it, has been an illusion? So much of life is completely outside of our control. This is one of the things, as we'll get to Ecclesiastes, that it's wrestling with. You can seem to do everything well and right, and then circumstances come, just seemingly random things that you had nothing to do with. It can just upset everything. Control is an illusion. And many are having that revealed. And rather than recognizing these false gods and others that are being revealed, and then, and then running to the creator as that happens, rather than doing this, many are fleeing to the God of government, a role that governments are very, very willing to take up. And yet, likewise, they are false idols. They cannot and will not deliver. They cannot keep us from all harm. And wherever the magistrates fall on the political spectrum, recognizing some are obviously much worse than others, but regardless, government makes a lousy God and is no place for people to pin their hopes.
So much has been exposed in the last year, and there's many more, I'm sure. These are lifeless idols that people serve and are enslaved to. They cannot keep you. They cannot protect you from death. They cannot prevent harm from following to you. And verse 8 says, All who make idols become like them. So do all who trust in them. Trusting in false gods is a fool's errand, and the end is to perish along with them. The glory of God Almighty, who resides in the heavens and mysteriously moves all things along their appointed path, the God who shows steadfast love and faithfulness to those in a covenant relationship with him, is a severe and significant contrast to the lifeless idols of any age. God is glorious on account of who and what he is, the almighty sovereign. He's glorious in his person. Secondly, the glory of God in his saving. If you look at verse 9, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, Trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. These verses call on the nation of Israel, broadly, and the house of Aaron specifically, that is the the line of priests, and then all who fear the Lord, probably a reference to Gentile converts. It's a summons for all all people, all of these people, to, to trust in the Lord. And it's appropriate because it says three times, he is their help and shield. The almighty sovereign who is in the heavens, who does as he pleases, helps and protects his people, making him worthy to be trusted. That the true God helps and shields his people is a wonderful truth to lay claim to, to trust in, to believe, to know is true. Were God sovereign and almighty and all-powerful and doing as he pleased, but not good, or if he didn't care about his people or anyone, then his power and might and all of that he is capable of doing would not be of comfort to us. It would even maybe be a terror to us. But in fact... For those who trust in him, he is their help and their shield. Furthermore, the psalm continues in verse 12. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. Confidence is expressed here that God will indeed bring blessing to the Lord's people, to all who fear him, both great and small. Every source of blessing ultimately comes from God. He, he is the provider and the sustainer of all mankind. Even those who are wicked, yet who eat food, ought to give thanks to him. They owe gratitude to God. This God who resides in the heavens, because it's by his invisible hand that they eat. And yet for such people, the unbeliever, uh, this goodness they've been shown, this mercy from God as they eat, as they survive, as they breathe his air and are not struck down on the spot, 
those sinners against him, all of this good that they've experienced will compound their judgment ultimately. It makes their ingratitude, their idolatry all the worse as they take the breath God has given them in their lungs to curse him, to deny him, to rage against him. And yet for the one who fears the true God, as we consider his many provisions, they are a great blessing. I mean, just consider for a moment how you ended up here. How you even ended up being born where you were born. Having the the privileges that you've had. We've all had different privileges. And yet, all have food in our cupboards, in our fridges. Many other great blessings that other people who were just born into this world haven't had. And while some people would revile you for having such privilege, the Bible says we thank God for these things. It's a mercy. It's not a sign we're better. It's a mercy. It's a privilege. It's a blessing from God. And even when things are difficult, the psalmist reminds the people, the Lord has remembered us. Remember as he's writing this and, and, and asking God to reveal himself gloriously by helping his people and so they're up against some sort of circumstances we're not aware of that are difficult. He's reminding the people, the Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. And then in verse 14, he goes on and says, May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. He, he's able to bless because he is the creator. The one who made heaven and earth. Is it, a, is it anything for him to be able to bless you and help you? No, of course not. He's the creator. He spoke everything into being. He can act. He can come and help. He can bless you. And so he, he prays this blessing over this benediction over the God-fearing people that he has mentioned here in the previous verses that the one who created all things would indeed bless his people. Not only is God the glorious sovereign in the heavens doing what he pleases, but it pleases him to create a people for himself and to be their savior, to be their helper, to be their shield, to create a people to bless and to shine his face upon. Under the old covenant, uh, this promises to the covenant people of Israel included promises of blessing in the land of Canaan as they trusted in the Lord and sought to keep his commands. And all the while, the faithful among them were anticipating the Messiah who would come and overturn the curse of sin that brought about by Adam and his sin. And now, as the Savior Jesus has come, he has died on the cross, he's risen again from the dead. This new covenant, the new covenant that was promised from of old, in which salvation would be granted to the Lord's people, This new covenant has been inaugurated. It has been brought about. It's been established with promises to it that all who believe in the Lord Jesus now turn from their sin, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, are forgiven, are granted forgiveness of sins, eternal life, reconciliation with Almighty God, the God against whom we have sinned and whose laws we've transgressed and broken. 
The God who created all things and who is in the heavens doing all that he pleases. The God with whom we ought to really desire to be in right standing with. This is promised in the new covenant upon faith in Christ Jesus. Indeed, there are many promises tied to this new covenant, including the promise that God will never leave you nor forsake you if you trust in Christ. The promise that he will complete the saving work he has begun. The promise that he works all things ultimately for good for his people. The reason these promises are so important and so helpful and necessary for us to hold to is because circumstances don't always seem to suggest that these things are so. We face, the Lord's people still face great difficulty. And we wonder, has he forsaken me? And the the scriptures tell us, no, he has not. And And they tell us that even when we do go through trial and we are being disciplined, that even so, God is doing this ultimately for our good, that we might be sanctified, that he does this as a loving Heavenly Father. As we feel weak and we struggle and we wonder if we will make it to the end, if we will still be believing in the Lord in 20 years or whatever, then we, we cling to these promises that he will see us through. We just keep looking to Christ, trusting in him, that God will sustain us and carry us through. These are precious promises of God's blessing and saving of his people. And ultimately, this work of saving and keeping and blessing is done to the praise of his glory and his grace. Because you know, we, we ought to know our weakness. And at the end of the day, when we're all standing before God, and, and it'll only be because of his grace. He delights to save people. It pleases him. This is something he desires to do. The God that is revealed in the Bible is not an impotent idol, nor is he a being or idea that simply exists within creation. He is the good creator of all things and as such he is worthy of our trust the repeated refrain here trust in the lord is the same refrain that we would declare to those around us to those enslaved to these idols of our day to such we say trust in the lord the true god the creator of all things Though you have sinned against him, though you've served those false gods, though you've sinned against the creator, he is also gracious and good, promising forgiveness and mercy to all who trust in his son, Jesus. He is able, actually, to deliver you because he is truly God. And though you die, yet you will live if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will come out from under judgment. Death is no longer to be feared. And so we would... We appeal to people, forsake your idols, turn to the living God. And to us in the church, to Christians, this text reminds you to keep trusting in him. He will not fail you. As one writer puts it, though you may experience affliction and testing, the Lord remembers those with whom he has made a covenant so as to bless them with his deliverance and the fulfillment of his promises. And so trust in the Lord. He is your help and your shield. And finally, the glory of God prays forever. Look at verse 16 to 18 briefly. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, 
but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time and forevermore. Praise the Lord. The precise relationship between these verses, these these final verses, how they relate to each other are a little bit difficult. Uh, But here's what I think he's getting at. Uh, The Lord has indeed created all things. The heavens are his. He's the creator of them. He resides there. And yet he has given to mankind uh, the earth to have dominion over it. So we see this in Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 31. And, and even though that's before sin enters and, and sin does enter in chapter 3 and, and is devastating, uh, this, this dominion is nevertheless reiterated in, in, to Noah after the flood in Genesis chapter 9. And so, so man is to steward the earth in a way that honors God, giving thanks to him, exercising a God-fearing, God-pleasing dominion over his creation. And yet instead of this, sin has subverted everything. Man is in rebellion, and things that are created, things that are not God, are made to be gods, are worshipped as gods. These are the idols that the psalmist has already decried. And then when the psalmist mentions the dead not praising the Lord in verse 17, I think what he's saying is that this earth was created to be the theater in which the Lord's glory would be displayed, in which the Lord would be worshipped by his subjects. And so if the Lord's people are destroyed by their enemies and they go down into the grave, then creation would be left with no one to worship and serve the Lord and creation itself would then serve no good purpose. There would be no praise of him here. And so, verse 18 then affirms that the Lord will keep a remnant of his people to praise his name as long as there is morning and evening. The church will not be utterly destroyed from the face of the earth. And this I think we see throughout the scriptures. Even when Israel is thrown into exile, even when Israel is under wicked kings, there's still a remnant left, God says, of worshipers who have not bowed the knee to false gods. Even when we look on dark ages of church history, there were still faithful believers in the Lord. Even as we read into the book of Revelation and we see all the warfare and imagery there of nations raging against the Lord's people, even so there's faithful among them. Additionally, verse 18 may also point to life beyond this life and into eternity. The reality is the Lord's people will not just worship as long as the world as we know it remains, but even after the Lord Jesus returns and ushers in the new earth, the dead in Christ will be raised to worship the Lord, to bless his name forevermore, as this text says. The true God will be praised eternally, forever. So, so the nations, yes, will rage, but as Psalm 2 says, truly it will be in vain. The Lord has placed his king in Zion, and the nations are his heritage. And so as you see idols being exposed around you, or perhaps even in your own heart, as we think about idol worship, uh, Calvin very famously talked about the heart being a, an idol factory. 
Uh, does not, again, if we think of the Ten Commandments to not worship idols, graven images, uh, again, we, we don't want to say, well, I don't have a, a, a literal idol that's been fashioned, and therefore uh, I obviously keep that command. As we know, those commands uh, get to the heart of the matter. Even the Old Testament spoke about taking idols into one's heart. Uh, there's many things that we are prone to worship. And so even as you have idols exposed in your own heart, I would encourage you to confess that to the Lord and renew your trust in him. Again, even the, the call to trust in the Lord in verses 9 to 11 are written to the Lord's people. And so be reminded here of the glory of the true God, of your God. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He's in the heavens. He's doing as he pleases even now. We don't understand why he does what he does in everything or how he's working all things for good, but that's what he says, and we cling to this truth. He's moving things along by his secret and often mysterious hand. This is what his people have always affirmed. And we're reminded here that he is the savior and the helper and shield of his people of all who call upon his name in faith. It is indeed right that God would be acknowledged by those whom he has created for the glorious being that he is. And so let us pray that he would act and move as we pray for his help and as we pray about matters in the world, as we pray for the church throughout the world, for Christians we know of who are suffering various ways, let us pray that he would do all these things that he might receive glory, that he might be honored, that that he would be given the glory that he is due even as we ask him to work on our behalf, that we ultimately see and understand that it's not just about us being okay or having things the way we like, but ultimately that he might be glorified. So let us be concerned that he is given the glory that he is due. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray. We do pray that you would work on behalf of your people here in our church and around the world in ways that would glorify your name, that your people would be in awe of your greatness and that your name would would not be reviled. Father, I pray that even as we see people revile your name, that we would, by faith, know for certain and be convinced and confident that, God, you are yet the creator of all things who resides in the heavens and does, and, and you do what pleases you. Father, we, we don't understand the way you work. We cannot fully comprehend your ways They are so far above our ways. We are finite beings trying to comprehend the infinite, eternal one. And there are limitations to this, and it's the way it ought to be. And I pray that we would be okay with that. That we would believe what you reveal about yourself in your word and be careful of 
speculating much further. Father, help us to receive the promises of your word that you are our help and shield, that you are the Savior of all who call upon the name of your Son, Jesus. Father, we do pray that you would do a great work even in our time and in our city. Father, that people who would, would, would be shaken out of their false trusts in false gods, whatever they might be, that they would tremble with the, at the thought of death, but not just fizzle out in despair, but ultimately seek refuge in your Son. Father, I pray that you would encourage us, that you would encourage your people in a, in a way that only you can, that you would take this psalm and strengthen our hearts, I pray that you would increase our joy, that our joy would not be tied to earthly circumstances. Father, we we so need you to work in us and to help us in all of these things. Father, we thank you for the provision of, of righteousness in Christ and for your grace as we are reminded of, of our great need for that. So Father, we do pray you would bless us. We do pray that you would strengthen and encourage us, and we pray this all, that you might be glorified, that as we fight through sin and stay the course, that it might be to the praise of your name. Father, we, we know our, some measure of our weakness, and I pray that you'd forgive us where we become arrogant. I pray that we would be humble before your majesty and deflect any and all praise and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.